morning, friends. So I'd like for us to think about what God is doing in Winchester, Virginia, and how he's doing it. So let me ask you, what is God doing in Winchester, Virginia? Now, you might not be from Winchester. I met some folks from Richmond. What's God doing in your neck of the woods? Probably the same thing. Now, you might say, so God is revealing his glory through everything that happens, both good and bad. God's doing that, isn't he? He's that sovereign. You might say, more specifically, God is redeeming sinners through the gospel of grace. And the gospel of grace was accomplished through the substitutionary death and victorious resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ? Those are great answers. And God is not only doing that here in Winchester, but he's doing it all over the world. So now let me ask you, how? How is God accomplishing those primary objectives? How does God accomplish his will on earth? That's a different kind of question, isn't it? And you might think of a hundred different answers. Like, for example, you know, God is an all-powerful God, and he can accomplish his purpose any way he wants to. And that's true. So, for example, God can use his creation. Everything in heaven and on earth, God can use to accomplish his purposes. God uses his spirit. God uses his word. Absolutely. These are all true. God can use angels and miracles. But the overwhelming emphasis of the New Testament doesn't tell us that God uses these supernatural, extraordinary events to accomplish his purposes on earth. The overwhelming evidence of the New Testament is that God accomplishes his purpose through his church. The New Testament has 27 books. 22 of them are written directly to the church or about the church. I could make a case that all 27 of them are written to and about the church, but I'm absolutely confident that 22 of the 27 are written to churches about the church. And for his purposes, God has chosen to reveal his glory and to redeem sinners by using his church. That means, friends, that Winchester Baptist Church has a vital role in Winchester, Virginia. That means that Lovettsville Baptist Church has a vital role where we help to plant that church in Lovettsville, Virginia. That means that Liberty Baptist Church has a vital role in Springfield, Missouri, where Willis and Mallory are, former members and residents. 
That means that the Reformed Zionist Church in Christ has a vital role in everything that God is doing in the villages around Escort, South Africa. God accomplishes his purposes through his church. So the question for us today is, how does the church accomplish God's purposes in each of these locations? What are we supposed to be and do? Well, the short answer is this. The church is to live out the faith. The church is to live out the faith through godliness and good works so that in every location, the gospel, grace, and glory of God is displayed. That's the main point of the New Testament book of Titus. We're beginning a study of Titus today. So welcome to the first of about 13 studies in a very short letter. Uh, You'll find it toward the back of the New Testament. If you're using the Black Bible at your feet, it's on page 998. And we just finished a study of Isaiah that was massive. It took 42 weeks to accomplish that study. Titus takes up a page and a quarter (laughs) in your Bible. Just one page and a quarter of another one. And as we begin our study this morning, I'm going to take about half of this sermon to give you an overview of Titus, and then I'm going to use the second half of the sermon to deal with the first four verses of introduction. So just kind of set your minds and uh, the tempo of your listening in this sermon. Now, the sermon will be about three hours, so... (laughs) Not true, not true. Half the sermon to give you an overview of the whole book, and then the other half of the sermon to show how the first four verses set up the main point of the whole book. My prayer this morning is that our church will fulfill our role in Winchester, Virginia by living out the faith through godliness and good works. So the book of Titus is not really a book. It's actually a letter. You know this if you've been around church and the Bible a long time. It's actually a letter that was written around 60 AD, maybe 62 AD, which is about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in the infancy of the church... The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to his gospel partner, Titus, who he assigned to ministry on the island of Crete. So Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea to the west of Israel. It's about 160 miles long, and it's narrow. For those of us who are spatially challenged, 160 miles long is about the size of the Shenandoah Valley. It's where we live from Winchester to Roanoke. That's the entire island 
of Crete. And Crete, like most of the rest of the world in 60 AD, was under the rule of the Roman Empire. So besides, as you can see, being a fantastic location for all kinds of seafaring trade and probably a great vacation spot, Crete was about as corrupt a place as you could imagine. It was well known for self-indulgence, sexual immorality, and gluttony. Most notably, the Cretans were known as liars. In fact, to Cretanize is to lie. And one of the reasons that they obtained the reputation for being an island full of liars is because of their version of the story of Zeus. Now, if you go back to high school or college and you remember your ancient Greek mythology, Zeus was the chief deity among all the gods. He was the big dog of the gods. He was considered the ruler and protector and father of not only all of the gods, but of all humans. So Zeus is the father god. And the Cretans claimed that Zeus was born and died on their island. Interesting that the god and father of all of the other gods, according to the legend in Crete, was born on Crete and died on Crete. Well, we're not sure when the Church of Jesus Christ got started on the island of Crete. There's a number of, of uh, possibilities. Acts chapter 2 tells us that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached that famous first sermon, that there were Cretans in the crowd. Specifically talks about Cretans being there. So maybe those people who heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost went back home and took the gospel with them. That, that'd be a great thing. I'd encourage all of us to do the same thing. Take the gospel home with you, wherever you go. Acts chapter 27, the other time that Crete is mentioned in the book of Acts, which is sort of like the history of the church, uh, Paul was on a voyage and he was shipwrecked near Crete. And uh, we know from this little letter between Paul and Titus that Paul said that there was some unfinished business on Crete. So uh, the speculation is that Paul actually visited Crete and potentially helped the church get started there. All of this is just plausibilities. Not We're not sure. But I think that's interesting that God accomplishes really good things out of really bad situations. Doesn't that give us all hope, right? Shipwreck ends up helping to potentially plant the church on this Mediterranean island. But what we do know for sure is that the church was there and that it was not, quote, in order. So the church was sort of a mess. If you're looking at your Bibles, take a look at this little letter to Titus and look at chapter 1, verse 5, and you'll see that when Paul writes to Titus, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul leaves Titus 
in Crete or sends Titus to Crete. So the question is, who's Titus? Well, Titus is a Greek Christian. Isn't that interesting that a Greek Christian was sent to a Greek island? And he was one of Paul's most trusted partners. Um, In Galatians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but you could look at it later this afternoon. Galatians chapter 2 tells us that Titus joined Paul and Barnabas. See, we always think about Paul and Barnabas as being a, a dynamic duo. There were more people as part of that team, and Titus was part of that ministry team. And he joined them right after the council in Jerusalem. And uh, good for Titus, bad for Timothy. Do you remember that at the council of Jerusalem, uh, they determined that Timothy needed to be circumcised. And uh, coming out of that, Titus did not need to be circumcised. So Titus is like, yes! Kids, you can ask your parents about that later. I found it interesting that there's a lot about Titus in 2 Corinthians. Would you ever think to go to 2 Corinthians to learn some things about Titus? Actually, Paul leaned heavily on his companion Titus to work in a really difficult and troubled church situation in Corinth. I mean, Corinth was a mess, and apparently... Titus had the kind of encouraging, patient disposition to deal with messy churches in Corinth and in Crete. So read 2 Corinthians 7 and 8 sometime, and you'll hear a lot about Titus's excellent ministry in this troubled church. So here we have Paul leaving Titus in Crete, and now... Paul writes a letter to his gospel partner. And what we have in our hands is a letter that we call a pastoral epistle. There are three pastoral epistles. Do you know what the other two are? 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And you'll note that these are personal letters to pastors Not just about them, but about them and the church that they serve. So Titus is one of three pastoral epistles that communicates the heart of the Apostle Paul to his gospel partner about pastoring the churches on the island of Crete. So I find it helpful, before we dive into any one particular part of Titus, to sort of get my arms around the main point of the entire letter. For example, if you were reading a book, rather than just starting on page one, you would probably start on the back cover, wouldn't you? And you would get that back cover blurb. So this week and last week, I spent a great deal of time writing what I felt like was an accurate back cover blurb to the book of Titus, and here it is given to you. Here's my summary of Titus. Titus is a letter from Paul to Titus encouraging the church in Crete, not just Titus, but encouraging the church in Crete to live out the faith. 
through godliness and good works. According to sound doctrine. In contrast to false religion and Christian culture. And so that the gospel will be displayed and the opponents will be silenced. I think if you were to go and read the letter cover to cover, all one and a quarter pages of it, I think that you would find these five emphases coming out, and you'll understand why I include that. And in fact, I want to take a few minutes to show them to you throughout the whole letter so that at the beginning of our 13-week study, you can kind of get your bearings around what Paul is communicating to Titus and the church on Crete. So the main theme here is that Paul is encouraging the church to live out the faith. Paul emphasizes the, capital T, faith. You know, there's a lot of difference between living out the faith and living out your faith, isn't there? Our culture is totally fine. In fact, we encourage people to live out your faith. You do you. Your truth, my truth, everybody's truth. So be true to your faith and express your faith sincerely. That's not Paul's letter to Titus. It's not the New Testament. What we find in Titus is that Paul emphasizes the faith. For example, look at chapter 1, verse 4. So you're going to have to just open the Bible and then just let your eyes follow me because I'm going to show you a bunch of different things. I'm going to show you these things throughout the book so that you see where I get this back cover blurb from. Chapter 1, verse 4, Titus, my true child, in what? A common faith. This faith is not individual. It's common. Verse 5, chapter 1, Titus has been sent to Crete to put things what? In order. That means there's an order to this faith. It's not a freelance faith. Chapter 1, verse 13, he's speaking of false teachers and rebuking them. And the goal is, look, that they may be sound in the faith. Verse 14, false religion is described as turning away from the truth. So just like there is an objective faith, there is an objective truth that Paul keeps emphasizing. So the church in Crete is to live out the faith. And by the faith, he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the objective truth of what God has done through Christ to redeem everything and reconcile everything back to himself. And then he uses four descriptions throughout the book. These are not necessarily in the first four verses, but we're going to see how the first four verses begin to point toward them. But this is a summary of the whole book. Let me show you. There's four descriptions of living out the faith. 
faith. Description number one, live out the faith through godliness and good works. Look at chapter one, verse one. The faith and truth accords with godliness. The largest portion of this letter is devoted to emphasizing godliness for everyone in the church. Just follow me. Chapter 1, verse 6, the elders are to live godly lives, and it describes what that looks like. Chapter 2, verse 2, older men. How many of you are older men? Ah, testing your honesty there and your view of yourself. Older men, chapter 2, verse 2, describes how you're to live out the faith in godliness. And it doesn't leave it vague. It describes it. Chapter 2, verse 3, older women. How many of you are? No, I'm not going to ask that. (laughs) Older women are to live this. Chapter 2, verse 4, younger women. And I think there will be more hands there. Verse 6, younger men, including Titus, described what a godly life lives like. Chapter 2, verse 9, bond servants. These were the workers of the society. Chapter 2, verse 11. And then chapter 3, verse 1, all Christians are to live, look here, godly lives in this present age. In other words, as long as we're here as earth dwellers, God wants us to live out the faith, how? Through godliness. And this letter is going to help us to understand what a godly life looks like according to God, not my own definition. Won't that be helpful for us? Because a godly life gives a proper view of God and his gospel. Description number two. So you're to live out the faith through godliness and, pardon me, not description number two, but That second part of that, and good works. I I love this emphasis in Titus. The word good is used ten times. It's a major Pauline emphasis throughout this little letter. Ten times he talks about good this, good that, and a number of them he's emphasizing good works. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Titus is to be a model of good works. Chapter 2, verse 14. God gave his son Jesus to purify a people Who are what? Zealous of good works. Does that sound like our church? Does that sound like you as a member of our church? Chapter 3, verse 1. The church is to be ready. Ready for what? Every good work. Chapter 3, verse 8. Those who believe in God are to devote themselves to something. Paul tells Titus, Devote yourself to good works. So the way to live out the faith here in Winchester, Virginia, is to live it out through godliness and good works. Description number two. Living out the faith according to sound doctrine. I think this is a fantastic and interesting emphasis of Titus because it doesn't leave this to vague understandings, but it roots everything in the way God prescribes for his faith 
to be lived out and what godliness and good works look like. So everything here in Titus is pointing toward living out the faith according to an objective set of standards called sound doctrine, the truth according to God. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. The elders of the church, those who are going to lead the church, one of the most important qualities of any elder is that he holds firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. That's how important it is. Chapter 1, verse 13, the goal of rebuking false teachers is so that they might be sound. The word sound is healthy, properly aligned, sound in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 1, Titus is encouraged to teach what accords with not what he thinks, not what he feels, not what the people need, but what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, in verse 2, are to be sound in faith. Older women are to teach what is good. And in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, in Titus's teaching, he is to show integrity and dignity and what? Sound speech. We live out the faith through godliness and good works according to sound doctrine. Description number three. Not just according to, but in contrast to something else. Just in our introduction, we can see that the church in Crete is going to be a different kind of people, aren't they? And so Paul emphasizes this to Titus, living out the faith in contrast to two things, false religion and Cretan culture. In chapter 1, verse 10, look at that. There's an entire section where Paul talks to Titus about the, the prevailing winds of false religion that are happening on the Cretan island. And it was a strain of Christians claiming that we need to keep all the Old Testament rules. They're called Judaizers. And Paul says they're a threat not only to the church, but they're undermining whole families. Paul cares about the church and the families in the church and knows that one of the number one threats to you and your family is false religion. Religion is a threat to your kids, not just obvious sin, but religion. Living out the faith in contrast also to this Cretan culture. I mean, you're talking about an immoral, gluttonous society that are known for being liars. Look there in verse 12. Shows their reputation, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then look over at chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. He says that apart from Christ, that's all of us. Not just the citizens of, of Crete, but all of us are characterized by foolishness and disobedience and self-centeredness and the passions and pleasures of sins. Friends... When we live out the faith, we're living in contrast to what comes naturally to us. God has to work the miracle of making us new men and new women. And God works that through his gospel so that the church of Jesus Christ, it's different. It's a peculiar people that is loving and gracious in society, but very different 
than society. Live out the faith through godliness and good works, according to sound doctrine, in contrast to false religion and Cretan culture, and so that. What is the end of the church living out the faith? Oh, it's the glory of God. Sure, absolutely. But friends, don't get so heavenly minded that you forget about all that God wants to do here on earth through his church. There are many, about 13 different so that statements, but I want to just show you three primary ones. Here are three primary so that statements, and it's summed up, summed up by this. Living out the faith so that the gospel will be displayed and the opponents to the gospel will be silenced. That's what God wants to do through Winchester Baptist Church in Winchester, Virginia. He wants to display his gospel, and he wants to silence the opponents. So look at chapter 2, verse 5. So that the word of God may not be reviled. The godly life of older men, older women, younger men, younger women, is specifically so that the word of God may not be thought little of, but in other words, your godliness and your good works gives a good reflection of God's word. Number two, chapter two, verse eight. So that the opponents of the gospel have nothing evil to say about the church. When they want to pick up a rock and throw at the church, they've got to figure out what to say bad about us because our godly lives and our good works are so prominent that they're just trying to figure out how to bring a railing accusation against us. And all they can figure out to, to do or to say is that we're a bunch of crazy people who believe that God became a man. Chapter 2, verse 10. What's the end? So that the doctrine of God, our Savior, may be adorned. Our godly lives and good works puts beautiful clothes on the doctrine of the gospel. Winchester Baptist Church, you have a vital role to play in Winchester, Virginia. Just like the Cretan Church played on the island of Crete. So now that we've seen a summary of the whole, understanding that this is Paul's big purpose, the back cover blurb. Let's see how the first four verses of this little letter set it up. So take your copy of God's Word. Let's read the first four verses of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Friends, this is God's Word, and I suggest to you that if you are in the habit of reading these letters and thinking to yourself, oh yeah, author, recipient, greeting, blah, 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 I'm going to get to the good stuff. 
then you're missing a lot of good stuff. Let's read it. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Did you already see some of the significance of understanding the back cover blurb in reading how Paul sets this letter up? Paul doesn't just say, hey, Titus, it's me, Paul. I'm writing a letter to Titus. Grace and peace, man. Paul, this this is impregnated with incredible depth and theology and gospel glory. We don't have time to unearth all of it, but let me just take a few minutes to show you how that from the very beginning of this letter, Paul emphasizes the church living out the faith in four ways. I'm going to give you all four right here. Paul emphasizes the importance of the church on Crete living out the faith in four ways. First of all, it's Paul's desire as an apostle. Secondly, it's the purpose of this letter. Third, it's the hope of the gospel. And fourth, it's Titus's assignment on Crete. Let's look at those one at a time as we close out this sermon. First of all, Paul says here at the beginning in verse 1 that living out the gospel is Paul's desire as an apostle. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul immediately stamps this letter with his apostolic authority. He wants to make sure that no one mistakes this for a a trivial post-it note. This comes with everything Paul can muster about who he is and his calling from God and Jesus, God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul begins to describe himself as two things. First of all, did you know that this is the only place in the New Testament that Paul describes himself as a servant of God? He constantly refers himself as a servant of Christ. Why would he emphasize that here, only place in the New Testament, 14 letters, did he call himself a servant of God? Probably because the direct opposition is coming from Old Testament Judaism. So he wants to assert himself that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, New Testament emphasis, 
I'm also the servant of God. Now, where have we heard the servant of God? Over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament for designations for people like Moses and David and the other prophets. These are servants of God. And Paul says, God has called me as one of his authoritative servants, and I am the apostle of Jesus Christ, one of only 12 that was sent with Jesus's authority and power, literally miraculous power. The reason that we don't walk around feeling like we have the power of healing in our hands is because we're not apostles. We might be little a messengers sent, but we are not big A apostles like the original 12 who Jesus gave them his power. They were special agents to propagate and preach the gospel for the first time. And everywhere that the gospel went, it was attested to by divine miracles. So we see guys like Peter and Paul throughout the book of Acts as the apostles of the church having extraordinary power from God that we don't have today. Wait, does God not heal? Oh no, God heals but not necessarily through the hands of men like he did in the book of Acts through the apostles. So we see the book of Acts as descriptive of historical events, not prescriptive of how it should be for every Christian today. We understand ourselves to be descendants, beneficiaries of that apostolic ministry, but not apostles. If you want to call me Apostle Tim, that's fine. But no, it isn't, actually. And I want you to note in verse 3, he says that he was called as a servant of God and an, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, he kind of brings that back around at the end of the sentence. And he says that the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, the God who saves through Jesus Christ, commanded and entrusted Paul and the other apostles primarily with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus to plant the church. So here at the beginning of this letter, it's Paul's desire and ministry as an apostle to encourage the church in the faith, in the gospel, to get it right, to keep it right, and to live it out right so that the gospel continues to be pure and not defiled by, say, false religion or our sinful cultures. Titus, the letter, this is the desire of the Apostle Paul. The second thing that shows the importance of this Living out the gospel at the end of verse 1 is the purpose of this letter. So remember that this is not just Paul sitting down and writing out a letter. He was probably in jail in Rome at the time, probably. We're not absolutely confident of that. But most likely in prison in Rome, writing to Titus, sending it by a courier, and 
the apostles were aware that God was speaking to and through them to continue to inspire Scripture. So God thinks living out the faith is so important that he includes an inspired letter from an, impo- from an apostle about it. And not just one, but you could probably take this theme from many of the inspired letters of the New Testament. But this is the purpose of this letter, and Paul says so much at the end of verse 1. I want you to notice, just from a grammatical standpoint, that there are two main points that Paul is going to make here. So if you like grammar, if you like order and structure, then you'll like this. Look there at the after Paul introduces himself as, an, as a servant and an apostle, he gives two prepositional phrases which give us two points. First of all, for the sake of, and then secondly, verse 2, in hope of. Those are two different points. For the sake of is Paul's purpose. I'm doing this for the purpose of, and in hope of is his basis. I'm grounding this in the hope of eternal life. So living out the gospel is the purpose of this letter. Look at the end of verse 1. Paul says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. First of all, notice how Paul describes those whom Titus will serve, the church on Crete. He describes them as what? God's elect. God's chosen ones. God is the one who chooses, and he chooses those who receive the gospel all over the world. Crete, Israel, Winchester, Virginia. Not only is that a wonderful theological thought, doctrine, and has massive implications, but I think Paul is emphasizing that here. Because from the very beginning, he wants the church in Crete to recognize that they have been chosen specifically to accomplish God's purposes on Crete. So not only have they been chosen for grace and salvation, but you have been chosen, elected, selected to be part of the church that God wants to use to display his gospel and his glory in every location across the globe. Paul emphasizes his purpose in writing by saying, for the sake of, look at that in the middle of verse 1, for the sake of, I'm writing this for the sake of, I'm writing this to further, to advance something, To encourage three things. Number one, to strengthen the faith of God's elect. Number two, to increase the knowledge of the truth of God's elect. And number three, to encourage their godliness. Paul says if you want to boil this letter down to three things, boil it down to the faith, the knowledge of the truth, and godliness. Why? Because faith in the gospel and the truth of the gospel always results in godly lives. 
let that sink in for just a minute. True faith in the true truth always results in godliness. Do you see that word there? Which accords with godliness. If your faith and your knowledge has not led to godliness, it's a fraud. Faith in religion. Knowledge of the Christian culture. Where does that lead? Ungodliness. But faith and knowledge of the truth leads to godliness, and that's the purpose of this letter. Paul wants to encourage our faith throughout the Throughout the New Testament, all 13 or 14 of Paul's letters, you just sense his desire to build up the faith of the church. That's why Paul is so rich in his um, doctrine. He wants to increase our knowledge of truth. And with the end, not that we'll have fat brains, but we'll have godly lives. Number three. Paul explains the importance of living out the gospel by rooting it, grounding it in the hope of the gospel. Look at verse 2 and 3. So this second prepositional phrase, not only is it for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth in accords with godliness, but it's in hope of. In hope of what? Eternal life which God, who never lies, promised, manifest in his word, and entrusted to me, one of his apostles. What is this he's talking about? The hope of eternal life. Friends, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and in death. The gospel That God, rather than giving judgment to every one of us for our sins, gives grace because he extinguished his judgment at the cross of Jesus Christ by lumping all of our sin on Christ and then pouring out his wrath on Jesus instead of all of those who will come in Jesus by faith. The hope of eternal life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that he is writing in hope of. That's Paul's way of grounding everything that he's about to say in the gospel of Christ. So notice here that God has done three things to give us hope of eternal life. What has God done? The hope which God promised before the world began. And oh, by the way, he's the God who what? Never lies like the Cretans or Zeus. He's the guy who existed before the world. He didn't, he wasn't born and never dies and he never lies. It, this is the hope which God didn't just promise, but then he manifested. He revealed it. So it'd be one thing to promise, but if it's never revealed, that's not much of a promise, is it? He didn't just promise it, this hope, promise of eternal life. But he manifested it when? At the proper time. Where? In his word. And how? Through the preaching of the gospel. 
the hope of eternal life came at the proper time. When? When God became man in the incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of eternal life was revealed in God's word, in the Old Testament with promises, and in the New Testament all fulfilled through Christ. And now, how is that hope of eternal life revealed? It's revealed through preaching. Not just stand up in front of a crowd preaching, but just declaring it in normal coffee conversations. Which God promised, which God manifested, and look at the end of verse 3. With which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. The promise of hope in Christ God entrusted this hope to Paul and the other apostles and through them to the church so that it would be revealed through preaching. So living out the faith here and now is based on not just this hope so, but living out the faith here and now is based on the promised, revealed, and entrusted eternal life that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's a question for you. How? How does the hope of eternal life encourage the church to live out the faith here and now? What does the hope that we have in eternal life do for us right now? I mean, it doesn't come until later, right? Well, no, that's a a misnomer. Eternal life has already started. We already have it. We're already experiencing it. We're just experiencing it under the sun in this world, in this present age. But the hope of eternal life If you go back to those three things that Paul says are his purposes, the hope of eternal life secures our faith so that we never walk away from Jesus because he is our only hope for eternal life. Our faith in Jesus is strengthened and solidified. The hope of eternal life drives us to know more of the truth. So that we're set free from sin in this world. So that we can grow in sanctification and faith. And the hope of eternal life motivates us here and now to live godly lives by increasing our love for God and diminishing our fear of man and what they'll think if we actually live the kind of godly life that Paul describes in this authoritative letter. So living out the gospel is the hope of the gospel. And then finally, living out the faith is Titus's assignment on Crete, verse 4. So after Paul introduces himself, his purpose, and after he grounds all of this in the gospel, then he says to Titus, my true, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Living out the faith is Titus's assignment on Crete. Paul presents Titus as 
my true child in a common faith. True means that he's my genuine son, not biologically, but in the faith. He's my representative. In other words, what Paul is doing here for anyone who ever reads this later letter is that he is saying Titus is my authorized representative on Crete. Jesus made me an apostle, and I'm telling you that Titus is my man. You can trust him. Friends, God has always assigned faithful men the task of shepherding and encouraging God's church to live out the faith. And that was what Paul encouraged Titus to do there on Crete. In a place about as big as the Shenandoah Valley, Titus was to go from church to church, setting things in order and encouraging every church to live out the faith for the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. And Paul says, he is my genuine son in this common faith. His faith is my faith, is Jesus' faith. It's the same faith. And then Paul prays for God's blessing on his task. Look at the end of verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Not throwaway words. Not just uh, mere sentimentality at the beginning of a letter. What does Titus need for this job? What do you need to live out the faith? You need the grace of God. The grace of God is everything that you need to accomplish God's will. It's the desire and power to do what God has called us to do. And you need peace. Why? Because there's false religion and a Cretan culture all around us. They're going to oppose you. So may the grace and peace of God be upon this task. And that comes not only from God the Father, but through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Friends, God has called his church to live out the faith through godliness and good works so that the gospel will be displayed in every location where the church exists. That's Paul's desire as an apostle. That's the purpose of this letter. That is the hope of the gospel. And that is Titus's assignment on Crete. Winchester Baptist Church, that's our assignment in Winchester, Virginia. And may God give us his grace and peace as we accomplish his purpose right here and now. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you very much for the letter from Paul to Titus and the encouragement to live out the faith. Thank you that that faith has gone down through the ages and across all these continents and countries to come to us. Thank you that by your grace you have made us part of your elect. And now we have a job. That job is to live out the faith through godliness and good works. I pray that this summer you would motivate us by your gospel to do that very thing for your glory and for the advance of the gospel here and around the world. We praise you in Jesus' name.
Amen and amen.